Welcome back. It's Hit Factory. Just Aaron on this side of the mic today. But fear not. As always, I've brought along a wonderful guest to fill in uh, for our beloved Carly. It's not just me talking by myself today. No one wants to hear that. I don't want to do that. Uh, my guest today is a New York-based filmmaker and producer, friend of the show, Mr. Chad Harbold is here. Chad, welcome to Hit Factory. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, really happy to be here. Today, we're going to be talking about Tim Burton, who we have not talked about on the show in a minute, I think since like the very early days of Hit Factory, like in the single digit episode count, we did Sleepy Hollow. Uh, and we're going to be talking today about his 1994 biopic, Ed Wood. From Touchstone Pictures, he brought you Batman and Beetlejuice. Now, from the mind of Tim Burton, comes an incredible journey into a magical world. Hollywood. Action! This is the true story. You want to keep moving? You've got to get through that door. Ah, that was perfect. Of an unforgettable filmmaker. That was a nightmare. Worst film you ever saw. Well, my next one will be better. Johnny Depp is Ed Wood. Hello. Rated R. Midnight Sneak Review this Saturday in Select Cities. So, Chad, I assume uh, the reasons you want to talk about this film begin with uh, you champing at the bit to touch the third rail that is Johnny Depp, of course. Yeah, uh, I, I I have a real strong uh, Johnny versus Amber take, and uh, <laughs> I just needed people to uh, hear it. Had to get it out into the world. You were saying as much to me. You're like, people are going to... People need to hear this. People need to to know my stance on it. I'm ready to mount my position in approximately 20,000 words. Uh, and I see you pulling out the scroll now, ready to, to talk about it. We'll get, to, we'll get to it at the end of the show, maybe. Um, no, of course, we just, we will inevitably have to talk a little bit about it and, and Johnny Depp as celebrity. Uh, but before that, I am curious, Chad, like why Ed Wood... What does the film mean to you? Where did you start with it? Where do you find yourself today? Yeah, I mean, I was I was telling you before we started, like, I, I think I've seen this movie probably a million times. Uh, I was trying, I was remembering when I, when I first encountered it, I'm like, I would assume you are, and a lot of listeners, kind of a child of the 90s. I was born in 86, uh, so I really kind of came online as a, you know, cinephile in the mid to late nineties. And, you know, um, uh, along that journey, especially during that time, I feel like you encounter uh, the films of Tim Burton, you know, as a kind of weird kid or, Hey, you seem to like weird movies. Like, have you seen Edward Scissorhands and Beetlejuice and a nightmare on Elm street? Uh, or I'm sorry, nightmare before Christmas. Um, you know, my parents were very sort of white bread, so they were, they weren't really into the whole sort of Gothic thing. Um, but I think I remember seeing, uh, A Nightmare Before Christmas first and then, and then maybe Beetlejuice. And then I distinctly remember seeing Sleepy Hollow in theaters when I was 12 or 13, um, which I really loved. And I, I would imagine that that sort of, triggered me to go back to kind of understand who this filmmaker was uh and then uh you know watched uh ed wood probably on vhs in or dvd in in you know 1999 or 2000 um and i really do think it's 
you know, in retrospect, his masterpiece and uh, his best film and, you know, also kind of a film that could only exist if Tim Burton existed during that specific time. Um, I don't know who else could have or would have made this movie at this scale and certainly with this much sort of tenderness and beauty uh, during that, uh, you know, at at any time. Um, So it's a really kind of wonderful thing that exists. And, you know, funny enough, I never, it never caused me to actually want to watch any of the movies of Edward (laughs) D. Wood Jr. Yeah. Um, I was never really a bad movie kind of viewer, you know, Um, that kind of, thing never really appealed to me um but i did uh for this podcast recording finally watch uh glenn or glenda and plan nine from outer space and i'm sure there's plenty to talk about with those i mean the immediate thing to mention is just how sort of lovingly and accurately they are you know recreated in in tim burton's film it's remarkable like the the level of uh just specificity and detail in those recreations that they do on screen uh even down to like the stock sort of footage or the the yeah. extra footage that they create of like Bela Lugosi or any of those other kind of items i assume they use the real explosions and the buffalo and stuff like that from Glen or Glenda. Uh, I was cackling, laughing, seeing the Bella Lugosi uh, stand in, uh, you know, double yeah. uh, in plan nine because it's so obviously not him. And just remembering <laughs> the sort of recasting of the chiropractor uh, was just uh, really tickled me. Yeah, I mean, that part of the film is so funny, too, especially if you see uh, the, the actual footage in Plan 9. And, and I, I did take a look at it. I, I also watched uh, all of Glen or Glenda for preparation here. Uh, lots to talk about with that one, by the way. Um, pretty pretty remarkable little film, you know, for something that I, I think was you know cast off as just this awful, you know, B or even C picture at the time. Uh, but with with Plan Nine, like even when you watch the real footage, when you watch you know the chiropractor in Ed Wood, looks nothing like Bella, moves nothing like Bella, is significantly younger, younger than Lugosi, yeah. and that scene is just so funny and I think indicative of so much of like the appeal of this movie, which is, uh, it's a beautiful fantasy, yes, like it's very much like a Hollywood kind of thing, but it's all told through this the optimistic eyes of its central character. And in that scene, especially, nobody else sees the vision. They're like, this guy, like he don't, he doesn't look anything like the Holocaust and and Ed Wood, you know, Johnny Depp in the in the role is just like, this is him. He's got the essence. Like he he's a spitting image after rejecting all these guys that look, you know, equally nothing like Bella Lugosi. And and I think that so much of the charm is in that is just like we see the limitations, we see I mean, for for lack of a better term, some of the delusion at play here. Uh, but there's such a, a non-judgmental and like loving humanist and delicate kind of eye on all of that and these characters. I mean, yeah, what's so beautiful about it, and I think it's sort of central conceit, is that, you know, it's really just the portrait of an artist and the fact that he's not, 
you know, particularly talented or doesn't have the kind of resources that he would need. I, I don't think that with more resources, he would necessarily make better films, but they are distinctly his. And I think Burton really just loves his love of making a thing, you know, which is like where all art comes from as the start, you know? And like, I think that the kind of beautiful optimism and the, his uh, unwillingness to ever give up uh, is just uh, so endearing and, and it makes you really want to root for him. I mean, it's a, I, it's, I'm sure a line in the trailer, but when he says kind of like, you know, worst, worst film you've ever seen, huh? Well, my next one will be even better. Like, it's like, that's <laughs> the character right there. Like, my God, how could you not love this guy? Like, I think everyone that has ever had a dream or wanted to make a project or be an artist or a filmmaker like can uh, identify with this guy. Absolutely. You know, I, the, another big line for me is that, you know, filmmaking is not about the tiny details. It's about the big picture. And, you know, as as a, you know, C tier podcaster myself, I say that all the time about the endeavor of Hit Factory. Right. It's about the big picture not the little details. And I, I see so much of myself uh, in Mr. Edward D. Wood Jr., uh, less some of his private life stuff. Uh, I, I won't cop to that necessarily. But, uh, you know, that that there is this artist who is aware of his limitations, yes, but also someone who just continues to strive for a vision. And it's out of like a, a pure sort of affinity and love for the craft. And I think that's what separates the character in, in this and what makes the movie so special is that, you know, he's surrounded by all these guys who have, you know, been so sort of hardened by Hollywood as a, as a business. And it is, it's, a, it's an industry. And he's a genuine, like, creator. He wants to make things because he loves it rather than to, you know, make a buck or, you know, finance the next big picture and, and continue to, like, generate revenue for the studios. So I think that something that is very beautiful about his character as portrayed in the film is that he sort of just believes in the idea of, of creation for its own sake. Like one of the things that I've seen in people that are, that succeed in this business is that they're kind of like idea factories that like, they don't have this one perfect idea that they're obsessed with, um, you know, realizing necessarily like, they they never met a bad idea that they didn't figure out some way to make something out of. And, you know, when you're uh, a, trying to make it kind of writer director in this biz, like everybody you, you take all these meetings and blah, blah, blah. And like really like everyone expects the ideas that you're pitching them your perfect movie that you want to make but what really happens is they have a bunch of shitty ideas that they want someone to figure out a good way to make and often the people that get movies made are the ones that you know hear these executives or these production company people with their you know article or their book or their graphic novel that they own and and you come up with a good take or a good pitch on it and that's how you get something made uh, as something that's already in the system as opposed to bringing something new in, into a system that already exists. And like watching Ed in the film kind of, you know, create a whole narrative out of disparate stock footage is like, 
you know, kind of amazing. Like it's, it, that's, even though the ideas are kind of silly, like that's not easy to do, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. And there's something I think really valuable and, and really, like you said, noble uh, about the level of autonomy that he wants to maintain over his finished work. And certainly he makes compromises and, you know, has to hire on like Rance Howard's kid to play a role or, you know, hires on, uh, you know, an actress because she thinks he, she has money to finance their project and, and ultimately doesn't. Uh, but you know, he, he constantly looks to kind of this bastion of artistry and autonomy within Hollywood that he idolizes in Orson Welles. And, you know, it's, I, I think the, uh, the comparisons in the film are so generous and so wonderful because there is a reality to, I think, both of them sort of occupying and, and holding that same ethos, even while, you know, Orson was 27, 26 years old and, and made Citizen Kane, uh, while Ed Wood was making Plan 9 from Outer Space in his 30s. But it's the same. And like, everybody you talk to, they come, they come with the same stories, man. Like, everybody, like... You know, I'm out here kind of making, for the most part, like two, three, four million dollar genre movies. And you talk to people that are a step above that, like saying, make you making like eight, ten million dollar, like a 24 movies. And then like above that, above that, everybody has the same stories. It's always, you know, some executive that doesn't know what they're doing, some director, some actor giving everybody shit, yeah. some compromise that you have to make, some line producer that is lying to you like it's all kind of the same and so it's a really beautiful scene at the end between like you know genuinely the best director whoever lived versus the worst and they're having a conversation that they're commiserating about essentially having the same problems and that just feels really like you said generous and uh and really kind of accurate to me and i don't know if that is that do we know if that ever happened or is that just pure imagination yeah i do not know if he ever you know had a chance encounter with orson wells in a bar uh, it, i mean it, it could have happened uh, you know it's not impossible it certainly feels like a, a contrivance of the script you know as sort of that kind of third act kind of booster and and you know getting us into the kind of denouement or whatever but like uh, I, I would like to believe, I, I hope that maybe, you know, if it wasn't Orson, it was somebody, you know, some big creative heavy in Hollywood who was able to talk to Ed Wood and, and commiserate with him about this and tell him, you know, like this, this artistry, this industry is the same at every level and you just got to keep your head up and, you know, try to maintain your vision as best you can. And also it's like, ultimately, you know, Orson Wells with, couple of exceptions was really an independent filmmaker too you know like he he was constantly scrimp scrimping and scraping and and compromising and getting bad money from from different kinds of random people and like all this stuff like it really was similar uh you know and he he references touch of evil at the end which i guess uh, was a universal movie that was then taken away from him. But um, I, I could be wrong, but I I believe that might have been his last studio movie. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take your word for it there. I think that you're probably right on that. I, I love that little throwaway line where he says, you know, they're trying to get me to cast Charlton Heston as a Mexican. 
uh, and which he just we... goes, and Ed Wood just goes like, "Oh my god," <laughs> uh, which you know, it, mixed results maybe in terms of the casting itself, but the film is uh, pretty unimpeachable as as a great yeah. one. So, uh, you know, you you mentioned Chad that this film feels wholly like a product of Tim Burton, his imagination, his vision, and kind of a, a sort of meta textual story in in some regards in terms of identifying with this kind of weirdo I, I was very surprised to learn that the film wasn't initially conceived of with Burton as the the head of the project so yeah I mean we should shout out um the great screenwriters Scott Alexander and, and Larry Karazowski um who are the best and maybe only good biopic screenwriters in Hollywood. Um, yeah, I mean, this with Man on the Moon, they did The People versus Larry, Larry Flint. Flint. Dolomite uh, is my name. Dolomite. Um, Their opus, Agent Cody Banks. Uh, oh, I haven't well. seen that. Uh, <laughs> and and then The People versus O.J. Simpson uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, and then t- also Tim Burton's Big Eyes, which I have not seen, but it has its defenders. But mm-hmm. um they are very good at this. Yeah, I guess um, originally Michael Lehman was going to do it. I just, I guess what I'm saying is I know that it wasn't, um, you know, originally his project, but I just, A, I don't think it would have actually been made unless he decided he wanted to do it. And then B, certainly wouldn't have been made in the same way or at the same uh, level of craft or sort of uh sincerity i guess completely agree with you and and yes you know like uh heathers love it great 80s comedy uh also a big airheads fan as well which is the film that michael layman did that conflicted with him uh doing this project but i I think that you're you're totally right that this does not happen without burton behind the camera and like at the helm of this thing the way you can also see a kind of like had no offense to Michael Lehman because I do love Heather's as well, but like you can see, you can imagine a sort of fifties living in oblivion version of this movie. Mm-hmm. That's just kind of a comedy about an idiot, you know? Um, right. And, and, you know, I just like, I just can't imagine there's was any other a list Hollywood director at that time that actually liked ed wood's movies and had seen all of them you know what i'm saying like (laughs) completely um and and you know so it's a really kind of beautiful uh thing that happened and used to happen all the time especially in the 90s uh and doesn't really anymore yeah totally and you know burton has made a career especially near the beginning of it of chronicling all of these characters these people who sort of live at the fringes who are not accepted wholesale by society who are you know even monsters in in some regard but all of these kind of oddball sorts of characters and you know this sort of theme of of found family emerges in a lot of his movies and and does so in this as well and i think that you're right that you know even someone like layman who's made some some very good movies that i enjoy has maybe a a, a touch of cynicism to him that I yeah. think would not play well in this movie and would ultimately, I think sort of denigrate this character and the script. Whereas Burton is just like completely humanist the entire time and, and focuses this on just a, a incredibly loving and sincere portrait. 
and the balance he's able to strike is remarkable. Like never does it feel cloying to me, which is something yeah. that it so easily could have the way that Depp is playing the role and in that kind of like, ah, shucks sort of manner could easily kind of boil over into something that is a, a bit odd. We've seen it happen before. I, I think that his version of Willy Wonka does that. And I, I hate a lot. Woof. <laughs> uh, uh- yeah, I mean, it is kind of incredible. And even trying to recast the director of this movie, the only other person I could think of is John Waters, who, you know, I I don't, I've not necessarily heard talk about Ed Wood, but I would imagine he's, you know, uh, a fan or at least, you know, uh, aware of him mm-hmm. in a, but like, and but even him at that time, like he wasn't and that was probably his studio era or, you know, his brief uh, his brief flirtation with that. But he still wasn't getting 20 million dollar budgets for a black and white movie. You know, like I just think that, like, it is really a masterpiece of tone um, in the sense of its of its sort of realism and sincerity. But it's also like in this kind of with this fifties all shucks tone, but also has the kind of like haunted house sort of vibe. It's also like incredibly beautiful looking movie. Like, my God, like I, I have to think that it's, and it's, it's not talked about this way, but like that is one of the most beautiful, uh, modern black and white movies ever. I think like, and I feel like it's really not usually in that conversation. I remember the first time, after having seen it a lot on VHS and then DVD, but the first time I saw it in, in full HD, like on a Blu-ray or like on a, you know, iTunes rental or whatever, like say like five years ago, I was totally blown away by how great it looked like, Oh my God. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, Stefan Chopsky, I I believe is the name of the cinematographer on this, whose work I'm not terribly familiar with, but I see that he has... Well, he shot Batman Returns, Uh uh, which makes sense. And uh, yeah, it doesn't have a terribly long filmography. Oh, he shot The Thin Blue Line. That's interesting. Interesting. Yeah, Um, I mean... This is this is like you said, just like sort of the the pinnacle of like black and white cinematography of this era, and it's 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 so, like so much of the rest of the movie to me, where it is sort of lovingly referential without kind of moving into the area of pastiche, and you know they play with some of those you know kind of noirish shadows and and the canted angles and things like that, but. It, it always does it kind of selectively and in moments where you want that kind of heightened drama and, and energy in the scene and never feels like we're making a movie that is stylistically aping like a particular type of genre piece. Yeah, but it somehow does both. Like you have these sort of establishing shots of like, you know, the the, the Brown Derby or like these other kind of places that mm-hmm. that look like they could be you know, matte paintings or whatever. And then we're cutting inside to like very realistic sort of, you know, not exactly naturalistic because the characters are also weird, but like it really strikes this balance um, that's kind of unbelievable. And, uh, you know, it makes sense that, I mean, I read in the Wikipedia that like Columbia was going to do this movie and then, they wouldn't let him shoot it in black and white. Right. Uh, which I think is like completely crucial. Like I just tonally and 
Like, I don't think the movie works at all if it's in color. It's hard for me to fathom like what that would even even look like. I know, you know, on the posters for this film and and a lot of the marketing materials, you see that like bright pink Angora sweater that's like done in in color and touch slip like that. Uh, I, I wonder if that was initially like a, a, an idea that they had to throw in kind of, you know, little uh, nicks of color like that. The other movie that I think of that does almost an identical thing is Schindler's List with the girl in the jacket, which is maybe why they didn't end up doing it. Um, but I, I think that just as like a, a black and white film and as like a, a stylistic decision, it's it's, as we've said, so crucial. It allows them to play around so much in this. And I think what it does, too, is it it hides some of the seams in the filmmaking the same way that like an Ed Wood would with with his film Woodwood is a weird thing to say, but um, you know, like when, when they're doing those recreations of those sets, when they are, are shooting, you know, like the scene where Bella Lugosi has to operate a, an octopus puppet himself and make it look like it's attacking him. And, you know, fuck you, you get in here <laughs> in like a bog of shallow water. That stuff to me just plays so much more richly and, and more beautifully when it's done in black and white like that, you get, those headlights that are kind of like up on the hill from the cars too. And you realize like, Oh, this is how they're lighting the scene kind of diegetically like in the film. Yeah. And it's also, it's like, it is really interesting because it's like, it's not as if he's trying to show Ed Wood up or anything, but it's like, he's doing things that are like, for example, with the, the octopus, heist little scene that they do like that's something out of an ed wood movie in a lot of ways and like but it's done but it's so beautifully shot and made that it's like it is this balance of it's not exactly that he's trying to recreate those techniques or that look or or you know the or recreate the pastiche of it but he's also not not doing that he's kind of doing that through the filter of his own sort of talented artistry and craftsmanship where it's like, it's, it's sort of done. It's, it's that style, but done very well and done with the resources of, you know, a major Hollywood production in in the nineties. Like, so it's kind of an amazing, you know, amalgamation of tones and crafts and, um, and talent like that's what makes the movie so special and why it's like so watchable again in like 2024 where it's just like it's a movie from no time like it's from the 50s and the 90s like and and it's 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 just really beautiful and cool like i mean it's almost like a fucking todd haynes movie in terms of like how it like takes all these disparate elements and puts them together and makes them one you know Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny that you mentioned Todd Haynes. We just covered uh, his uh, 91 film Poison on the show uh, a, yeah, a few I weeks back. Yeah, that one. Great, incredible movie. I mean, Safe is is top 10 of the 90s for sure. But yeah, Poison is unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, Safe is, is certainly his opus. But I, I was thinking about the one entry in the triptych, that, uh, that element called Horror, which plays mm-hmm. out. And is shot and emulates uh, one of these kinds of mid-century B picture, sort of like sci-fi kind of kitschy movies, uh, and it plays like an Ed Wood film. You know, there there's stuff in it that feels very akin to the kind of thing that 
Burton's experimenting with formalistic, like formally here. Uh, but also, like you said, there's like a, a, a sort of potent sense of melodrama. There's a heightened sort of Hollywood studio movie kind of appeal to it. It plays in that like 50s kitsch. It's doing so much of, of this work to balance all of its tones, which are much further apart than I think you even perceive or pick up on while you're watching because it's a very delicate balancing act just like everything else is in the movie and because I find it, it coheres yeah i mean like that's the the hardest part about it is that it just pl- it just plays like that's that's how good it is is that it it is it, it's watchable without you having to think about all that stuff um it, it's an incredible balance of tone and it just is so sad because he's just completely lost it in the last 25 years, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest thing when you kind of watch this movie is like, and, and every time before, because I've never been, admittedly, I've never been a big Burton guy. I think when I was a kid, Same. the the kind of gothic, like macabre stuff, like didn't really do it for me. Uh, and by the time that I was ready to maybe engage with him as like a serious artist and and when I was having my sort of cinephilic awakening, he was churning out, you know, studio shit. He was, you know, like uh, very much kind of on his decline. Um, so it's been like in the last probably like, you know, f- five or so years that I've gotten even uh a, a little bit warmer towards burton we we like i mentioned covered sleepy hollow for the show and i found myself enjoying that much more than i ever did as a kid yeah um, i like that movie i mean that would that's my argument as that's his last good movie basically like, i completely um, agree i mean i think you can stand up limply for big fish or sweeney todd but like i think and I haven't seen Big Eyes, or the, I certainly haven't seen the shittiest shit. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. uh, I mean, I think Sleepy Hollow is is that's the end of the run, basically. Yeah, I you know I, I'm one of the biggest uh, ape heads on the planet. Like I love all of the Planet of the Apes entries. I will even occasionally defend parts of the Tim Burton one, uh, but it it is. It, I mean, it's like one of those things like with, you know, uh, any number of Ed Wood's movies that aren't Glenn or Glenda or Plan 9 or something, you know, where it's like more interesting as a curio than as an actual good movie. Um, so I did yeah. want to watch. Um, what is it? Bride of the Monster. That one I didn't mm-hmm. have time to. Have you seen that one? I haven't seen it. No, I mean, that that part of the film really intrigues me though it's the kind of like centerpiece of the whole movie where he's getting that production off the ground they lose funding like you know a few days in and need to get it from uh the aforementioned rance howard uh you know spitting you know dip on the floor of his butchery or whatever it is like um and that stuff just it seems to have so much like fun cool interesting elements to it i mean the the squid and apparently alone. has his his last like bella's last kind of big speech you know mm-hmm. um that was fun to watch in plan nine um uh, outside presumably his real house and you know the kind of walking outside and looking at and smelling the flowers and all that stuff is like that is in plan nine and it is really beautiful and and you kind of feel it it's really nice to watch that knowing the context of it. Like, it's kind of a beautiful thing. 
So, what was the important news you couldn't tell me on the phone again? Well, I started thinking about what you were saying, about how your movies need to make a profit. Now, what is the one thing, if you put it in a movie, it'll be successful? Tits. No, better than that. A star. Ed, you must have me confused with David Selznick. I don't make major motion pictures. I make crap. Yes, but if you take that crap and put a star in it, then you've got something. Yeah, crap with a star. No, something better. Something impressive. Maybe the biggest moneymaker you've ever had. Fine, all right. You may be right, but it doesn't freaking matter. I can't afford a star, so what are we even talking about? All right. What if I told you you could have a star for $1,000? Who? Lugosi? Yes, Lugosi. Isn't he dead? No, he's not dead. He lives in Baldwin Hills. I met him recently, and he really wants to be in our movie. Why would Lugosi want to do a sex change flick? Because he's my friend. All right, fine. You can direct it. I want a script in three days. We start shooting a week from Monday. Oh, oh Mr. Weiss, thank you so much. You won't regret it. I won't let you down. We should probably talk about at some point. I guess we can do it now, but Martin Landau in this film as Bela Lugosi, Oscar-winning performance uh, for extremely good reason. He is wholly convincing as Lugosi and also just uh, just ignites the entire thing every time he's on screen. The, the movie is always fun and always moving at a, an impressive clip. But the scenes between him and Depp specifically and when he's performing are just really something else. He's incredible. And I mean, it is obviously a controversial win in a lot of ways because he famously beat Samuel L. Jackson for Pulp Fiction. Right. Uh, something that Samuel L. Jackson is, you know, relatively understandably uh, still kind of upset about. I think partially because... You know, I'd like to think we lived in a world where in 1994 you think, oh, well, Samuel Jackson will surely win a competitive Oscar like in his career after this and uh, never did. Yeah. And, you know, Martin Landau, I think he left us in in 2017. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to remember what else he maybe even could have been nominated for, I suppose, Rounders or something like that. But sure. I, I don't think... I, I'm not sure, but I don't think he was nominated again. Um, frankly, he should have won for crimes and misdemeanors, uh, yeah. you know, five years before. But uh, I, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to it's hard to talk about because, I mean, obviously, Samuel Jackson as Jules and Pulp Fiction is an instantly iconic performance. And, you know. Should he have been run in lead instead? Like all these questions, you know, are there, but it shouldn't take away from like Martin Landau is legitimately incredible in this movie and, you know, is, is kind of half the reason the movie works because it's the, it's the heart of it. It's the pathos of it. It's the connection with the past, you know, like Burton, Burton is connecting with Ed Wood, a figure from 50 years in the past and Ed Wood is connecting with Bela Lugosi, a figure from, you know, 30 years in the past and um, just kind of paying tribute to this incredible talent and kind of person that, you know, came from 
like off a ship from Hungary or whatever. Yeah. Like it's like <laughs> this this guy was born in a time when movies didn't even exist and like became like a, an iconic character and movie star that we still watch today and talk about today. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, if people haven't seen him in in Todd Browning's Dracula, like it's a fucking masterpiece. Yep. And um and then even I'm going to forget some of the um uh, his other work uh, that I've seen, like uh, some of the Val Luton movies. Yep. Um, oh, and the Edward Ed- Edgar G. Ulmer movie, The Black Cat, is Black Cat incredible. is incredible, amazing. He uh, he got over his rivalry with Karloff enough for some of those. Um, right, right, right. I mean, yeah, The Black Cat is legit, like one of the best, and you know, one of the best horror movies of that era. Um, and and yeah, I mean. I just remember being a little kid and having not seen any of these movies except for except for Ed Wood and just being like, well, obviously Bela Lugosi was better than Boris Karloff. We all know this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just has to be right. That has to be the case. Um, yes. And, you know, again, like with everything else, this beautiful alchemy, this beautiful balancing act, someone like a Bela Lugosi is so easy to emulate and to try to portray in a way that feels like just like rote shitty impression and he never does lando never does that in the film like it it feels like a lived in and very realized version of a character and just like a person and the way he talks and his mannerisms that have become so sort of iconic and and parodied over and over again that uh, i don't know it's it's something so special to behold as well and we should mention that um, his he, uh, not only did he win an Oscar, but his uh, makeup artist Rick Baker uh, won an Oscar as well uh, for the uh, for you know the prosthetics to mm-hmm. make him look like Bella. I assume it's a no, primarily like a nose and um, maybe kind of like forehead piece or something like that. But yeah. 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 I mean, they make him look uh, incredibly convincing. Yeah. I mean, in the fact to the fact that they do the thing that you really should not do, which is show Martin Landau watching real footage of Dracula and Bela Lugosi like back, you know, uh cutting back and forth and it plays like it doesn't uh ruin the illusion no not at all i love when filmmakers do that by the way i we uh just rewatched richard jewell uh over here in our household hell yeah fantastic late eastwood film like they all are but there's the scene where uh kathy bates is is watching the like good morning america interview or whatever and it's the real Richard Jewell on screen. And then Paul Walter Hauser just kind of, you know, trudges in and and there's no breaking of the illusion. It, it was that. And, and what else did I just watch? Oh, I, I rewatched uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood recently. Sure. And the, the scene where Margot Robbie is like watching the real Sharon Tate on on screen and, and you still don't lose the illusion, even though they don't really look that much like each other. Like right. I think that one, which I also love uh, and was so sort of moved by when I saw it in theaters originally for some reason. I don't know why it kind of got me, mm-hmm. but there's almost something interesting to that that they don't look that much alike and they're yeah. not even kind of trying um, so I, I do think that that's a little bit of a different thing, but like 
the Richard Jewell thing is funny because it's like, you know, they ask Clint, like, you know, where did you find this guy? Like, he's so good. Like, were you secretly watching like episodes of like, you know, it's always sunny or like, you know, <laughs> wherever you, you know, found this Paul Walter Hauser guy. And he just goes like, well, he looked a lot like him, you know, and it's like, <laughs> it's like, that, that's it, you know, like that's yeah, I know. And, you know, uh, I, I am curious about the casting and how it went down to find someone who could do Lugosi, right? I mean, Landau, obviously, mm. like an incredibly established actor uh, and a Nepo baby uh, performance in this movie as well by his daughter, Juliet uh, Landau. As, oh, who does she uh, play? She is the uh, young lady who they think is going to finance the the film at one point. Uh, Loretta King, oh, the one who he yeah. meets in the bar, who seems to have only a... Uh, only has $300. She only has $300 and she only has a very fleeting sort of grasp on reality. It seems like she, Mm -hmm. she claims that she's uh, deathly allergic to all liquids and won't even allow them to pour her water. So, uh, God, all, all of that sounds so eerily familiar. I mean, the actors, uh, buying roles with equity in the film is very much a thing that still exists. Uh, and yeah, I was getting lots of PTSD from all the various ways that, uh, Ed was, uh, trying to raise money for his movies. Yeah. Those scenes are, are very funny. Just the kind of like repetition of the Brown Derby sequences where they're going around and just the, I don't know, like the, the preening that they have to do. And, you know, literally at one point he gets down on his knees and begs Vam, Vam, uh, Pyra, but before that even when they're talking to these potential funders of his movie and you can just see that like they're just like kowtowing to everything and agreeing with everything they have to say there's the bit where ed is describing the movie as some sort of like horror sci-fi genre picture and then some woman in the crowd says like well i want to see like a you know like a romance like well that's what it is it's a romance well it's that too and like yeah (laughs) it's it's so great i mean it's just like it's just this tenacious kind of like guy that like will will let his movie be any be anything to anyone and it's it it what's so beautiful about it is it's not cynical like he does see it that way like he does see it as you know a a monster picture like all the big hits are but it's also relevant to today's atomic age but it also (laughs) has the laughs that like you want you want it to have and it also has the romance that brings the ladies in you know he like genuinely believes all of that stuff and it's and it's kind of incredible uh and i just that is the kind of figure that you need like i don't know i always say like with making these movies it's like it's always important to have an optimistic producer and a, and a pessimistic producer where, and I'm, and I'm usually the latter. Uh, but if you listen to me, we'd never make anything ever, you know? And so we somehow (laughs) still end up making like two, three movies a year, despite, you know, everything I think is going to happen. But like, uh, you need, you need like a, an, a, a kind of optimistic showman, you know, producer that just sort of like, believes that the thing can happen, you know, and that all the potential problems, you know, will either figure them out or they won't happen, you know? And, uh, it is a kind of beautiful thing to see that like, you know, despite everything, like 
this guy still has a handful of movies that like are still in circulation and still watchable and still have fans and can still, you know, sell out a midnight screening, like God bless him. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that level of optimism that, like you said, is so vital and so necessary. You see his moments of self doubt in the film. There are those, you know, kind of quiet moments alone with just like Sarah Jessica Parker or later uh, Patricia Arquette and, He's just like, am I a fraud? Like, is, do I, am I terrible? Like, is this really as, as bad as they say it is, you know? And, and well, he, he has those. the imposter syndrome like any good artist does, I think. Um, and, and I think that that is, is, is nice, but it's, it's like, I don't know. I always thought about this with regard to, you know, Tommy Wiseau as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like I said, I'm I'm not in general. Uh, I'm a fan of, you know, B movies and and trashy movies, but I'm not generally a fan of bad movies. Um, but it's like, you know, something like The Room, which similarly could only be made by this person under these circumstances. Like yeah. this was like The Room is not a failure. Like The Room was the movie that this guy wanted to make. And I think that makes it kind of fascinating. And um, I don't think it was, it's being received by the audiences in, in the way that it was intended, but ultimately like, you know, that movie costs whatever a million dollars. It's probably made 10 times that at midnight screenings. Yeah. That's a lot better than a lot of fucking indie movies can be set, can set, can, can be said for so who's to say what's a failure you know yeah absolutely and you know the thing with Wisso is like he's somebody i think who is too in his delusion and and is nowhere near as self-reflective as the ed wood that is portrayed in this film to like ever have that imposter syndrome or to ever be you know curious enough about something to ask like why this should be this way or is this in good taste or you know am i making something that actually is as resonant as i think it is whereas yeah i mean wood in this film and and the way that he's portrayed does have that and i think that the the way that audiences have received each of those people's works respectively kind of speaks to that like the, the room has become a sort of like kitschy midnight movie that you play along with and you know you throw spoons at the screen you laugh along with it even if it wasn't meant to be funny and with woods films like yes like i'm sure there is you know charm to it and and you do kind of laugh at some of the i don't know the the haphazard construction of it but i think that there is a like genuine movement in film circles and in critical circles that are reevaluating his films as something that speak to like an auteuristic endeavor or, or some sort of real vision despite the lack of resources. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think about like what, what he could have done if like his peak of sort of commercial viability or like ability to raise money happened, like say 10 years later, like if he was, you know, if he could make something like at the scale of, of plan nine, which is still small, but probably the biggest budget that he ever had uh, at a time when like something like night of the living dead or carnival of souls was getting made like at similar sort of amateur levels. 
like who's to say if he couldn't have made something that like endured uh in a in a more sort of serious way i mean i won't i can't say that like having watched the two his two movies over the weekend that they're like secretly good by any means but like i do they aren't cynical like i do feel the sincerity in which they were made and um and you know i i think that they they gave me joy to watch yeah absolutely i i completely agree like there's there's difficulty sometimes in watching them, but there's also a, a genuine originality on display too. And, and, you know, as I mentioned, I, I watched Glenn or Glenda. We haven't talked too much about the first part of this film because it really does kick off with this like kind of debut picture, which I think is probably his most autobiographical, uh, right. you know, sort of ironically enough. Uh, Ed Wood was during his lifetime, a crossdresser, and he, comes on and, and gets hired to make this picture about a real life uh, individual whose name, uh, Christine Jorgensen, I, I think is the name of, of the yeah, woman. Yeah, they talk about the Christine Jorgensen story. So what is Tap to do the Christine Jorgensen story, uh, which is a story itself about a transgender woman uh, who underwent one of the, I think, first viable uh, gender reassignment surgeries of the era in, in the 50s. Uh, and of course, there's many elements, I think, of this this woman's story that uh, Wood identifies with. And I don't know if it goes down exactly this way in real life, but in the movie, he tells the Mike Starr character, uh, what's the the producer's name? It's like George Weiss or something like that. Yeah. Um, but he, he tells him flat out when he's, you know, kind of uh, gaming for the job and just says, look, I dress in women's clothes. This is who I am. I've, I've done it my entire life since I was a boy. My mom wanted a daughter and, and dressed me this way. There's an oft-repeated little like anecdote that I think comes directly from Wood himself, where he says that you know when he was serving in the Pacific during World War II, that he was more concerned about getting wounded than he was about dying, because if he had to be operated on, they would have cut off his fatigues and revealed that he was wearing uh, women's underwear underneath. So... You know, this is one of the really fascinating textures to Wood as a person. Um, the the movie takes an interesting kind of stance on this, I think, which is that like Wood himself was insistent, despite his cross dressing, that he was a like red blooded American man, that he was like totally heterosexual, that it was just like a particular kind of quirk of his personality. Many of his friends uh, say the same. In fact, a lot of the people I think that were interviewed for the uh, Rudolph Gray biography, uh, Nightmare of Ecstasy, also are like very insistent to the point of like kind of over rotating on the point and just sort of like beating it to a pulp. Uh, and I wonder about it, you know, because Burton seems to take the same sort of play on this. And and I think the, the screenwriters do as well and just sort of take them at their word. But it, it feels like, you know, when you watch something like Glenn or Glenda and when you see kind of how persistent this behavior is over the, the course of his life and the kind of company he keeps and, you know, the people in his life, like like the Bill Murray character, um, Bunny, who is actually like, you know, self-identified as, as a transgender person who wants to have a, a gender confirming surgery. Uh, 
you you begin to wonder a little bit. You kind of ask yourself, like, is there something more complicated here than the movie is is revealing to us? And and I I don't know. I don't know where I fall necessarily on it, but it is certainly a, a interesting texture to the film and to his story. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's difficult to talk about, and and I think that there are some great trans critics who have written about both this movie and Glenn or Glenda. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think are worth seeking out uh, in terms of kind of, you know, contemporary take on it. I mean, I think that like, you know, it doesn't surprise me that people from the time were to insist upon that kind of uh, divide uh, Mm -hmm. there. And like, you know, I think who's to say how he would have, chosen to express himself or identify himself, you know, in a less restrictive time Mm -hmm. um, than the fifties. But I think regardless, like, you know, even, and even if Glenn or Glenda is a little bit kind of problematic or regressive sort of today, you know, I would imagine that it's fair to, you know, give him a lot of credit for, sort of putting those ideas and those images out there with any kind of sincerity uh, at that time, which he certainly did. Uh, And depicting the internal struggle of a sort of real, quote unquote, real, quote unquote, like normal American man, um, you know, several years before Psycho would kind of do the opposite, you know, I I think feels commendable, but um, again, I I am not an expert on the subject and defer to people that that know better than me. But I do think that it's like, and then also it's like you know, the '90s were also similarly regressive in in other ways too. But yeah, I don't, I personally don't necessarily blame Burton for not digging in more when like there was no really more sort of uh text to mine than what he and other people who knew him said he felt about it mm-hmm. um i think it's still sort of sincerely portrayed here and and sure it's it's kind of uh dancing on a line but like he was dancing on a line too so I don't know. It 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 worked and made sense for me. Um and and I think that like given that so much of the film's runtime is devoted to the making of Glenn or Glenda and like that being the kind of inciting incident of the whole movie, you know, I think that it um portrays it with uh you know a lot of uh sort of heart. I completely agree. You watch something like Glenn or Glenda, which was made now over 70 years ago uh and just the the level of compassion to it and just sort of like understanding like there's there's something to the movie that i i find just incredibly beautiful and really just loving and a word i keep coming back to is humanist and and generous to it you know it's it's asking you as a society as an audience member to like not look at transgender people as you know less than to not judge them uh and ask these questions of like what is so 
distinct and different about this as uh, a you know evolutionary step along the process of us understanding ourselves and of society becoming more what it what it's always been intended to be than you know the invention of uh, an airplane or the invention of a car or something and you know while that may be like a little overly simplistic i think that it is a compelling argument and one that comes from a place of like genuine love and and understanding and embrace of that community from wood and it's just like seeing something that incredibly progressive coming from the 1950s is astounding you know there's uh, beyond just the the fact that people you know didn't see this movie because of its its limited resources i, I can't imagine if everyone did see it what the overall response to it would have been you know it, it certainly uh I, I think has curried more favor now today in in the 2000s in the 21st century than it did at the time uh, and you're right you know with with burton too like i don't fault him for it and i think that there is across the board just a completely non-judgmental eye on all of these characters and their flaws or you know the things that they you know, internalize and and keep to themselves in their private lives. Uh, Lugosi's addiction is likewise played the same way. You know, I, we see the track marks on his arm and have a an extended sequence of him in rehab. And there's never any of that sort of very characteristic judgment of addicts that would happen in movies kind of of this era, and especially like in like the the Reagan eighties. Um, I, I just think of, you know, a story like this coming out in close proximity to uh, like Ace Ventura, Pet Detective and the way that right. those two things uh, deal with transgender identity or, or a- any of those things. And, you know, like a, what would be like queer identified spaces. Um, and this is certainly on the opposite end of the spectrum from something like an Ace Ventura. So. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, like I said, it's, it's just an overall, just, uh, remarkably human work. I, I love how much Burton seems to really love all of these characters. And I, I think the movie really hits a stride when it becomes this sort of, uh, band of misfits altogether. When they, when they go to the premiere of Bride of the Monster and it's literally like a, a clown car of Ed Wood and Vampira and Bella Lugosi and uh, and our, our wrestler friend uh, played by George the Animal Steel, Tor, Tor Johnson is the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it just, it's, it's, I mean, it looks like something out of the monsters, you know? <laughs> like I think they're even in a, what looks like a hearse uh, yeah. of some kind, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's just like a, a really lovely scene, and, and when it opens up into the theater with the kids going ape shit and throwing the popcorn everywhere, and the way it's dancing off of the light from the screen, it's just it's just beautiful moments like that where you see, I don't know, I, I have joked in the past before, like that Burton is like incidentally like a transcendental filmmaker because he like imbues his movies with like a uh, a profound humanism and likewise almost like a like a shocking startling apoliticism to his work that you know even when it feels like it could broach some certain topics it finds a a path through that doesn't feel like it's omitting or doesn't feel like it's obscuring while never kind of having to dance around in certain like materialist spaces but I, i think this movie is just sort of like the pinnacle of that and just defines it so distinctly and his style and not just his style but his whole kind of outlook and worldview 
if Burton's project, at least in the first half of his career, was that a kind of, you know, empathetic empathy for the islands of misfit toys in the world. And like, I think that, you know, you can make that argument for, you know, um, Pee Wee's Big Adventure and certainly Beetlejuice and certainly Edward Scissorhands and even Batman and Batman Returns, honestly, uh, that like, this is the sort of, you know, real world world version of that where it's, you know, obviously it's this found family, which is a sort of common theme in movies about filmmaking. Um, And uh, I think that he just, sort of genuinely loves these people and and loves the things that they made and i think in another i think what's important about it and why he was the right and only person to make it is that i think in another world he would have been making movies like this all right let's shoot this fucker great where do i go you'll be fighting with the octopus out there yes what happened to the stream well, this is going to look a lot better. We have to match it to the stock footage of the octopus underwater. Oh, for Christ's sake. God damn, it's cold. It'll warm up once you're in it. Fuck you, you come out here. Hey, throw me that whiskey. How do you turn this on? Well, somebody misplaced the octopus motor. So when you get in there and fight with him, shake his legs around. It looks like he's killing you. Okay. You know I turned down Frankenstein. What? After I did Dracula, the studio offered me Frankenstein, but I turned it down. The part wasn't sexy enough. Too degrading for a big star like me. Bella, I have 25 scenes to shoot tonight. Oh, sorry, don't let me slow you down. Okay. All right? All right. All right, let's put it on film. Camera? We're rolling. Sound? Yet we don't have sound. Oh. And action That was perfect. There sort of feels in the text of the movie and the way that it's being made and and the kind of hand that that Burton puts on it, this sense of like, not guilt, but like a recognition that he's been given this incredible gift of the resources of the finances and the budgets to make these like massive movies with studio backing, with wide audience appeal that deal with the kind of things that would found interesting and and that he gets to do that and Ed Wood 
didn't that you know like that he he recognizes very distinctly and very profoundly that i might be part of this legacy but i'm i'm doing it in a way that has become so much more like palatable and widely accepted and like what is the distinction and difference between the time that wood was doing it and how i do it now that he never found that same kind of cultural purchase during his lifetime and i think he recognizes that it's really just a little bit of luck and you know maybe a little bit more talent and maybe a a little bit more adventurous audience you know 40 years later but like but yeah i mean you know it's like you look at the first thing tim burton ever made which uh is this incredible short film called vincent um Mm -hmm. that's sort of uh an animated short narrated by um vincent price and is sort of a riff on the Raven and, and is the thing that got him hired at Disney uh, or, or maybe he made it when he was already hired there, but uh, is it's, you know, he was part of this lineage, um, you know, and cast Vincent Price in his final role in, in uh, Edward Scissorhands as well. But it's like, yeah, I think that Burton sort of realizes that like, he's not that different from Edward. He's just like born in a different time. And like, you know, maybe got a little luckier or whatever. And like, that's a great place to start to make, to, to begin with when you're making a movie about another artist. Mm -hmm. The movie too kind of feels like it's giving wood sort of the, the send off or sort of like the, the great little bit of recognition that he was never afforded and never got to really celebrate in his lifetime. You know, the, the film ends in a very kind of fantastical way with the, the premiere of plan nine from outer space after a, you know, very difficult production, him fighting every step of the way with the, the Baptists or that they're Baptists, right. Who he has to like, uh, get the financing from and, you know, kind of convince who he convinced they can make, they're the movie they want to make after this one with the profits <laughs> of this one. Again, like all these tactics, like they seem huckstery or whatever. We use all this shit all the time. still. like, yeah. Oh, of, of course. I mean, he's, you know, he's on that grind. He's, he's just, he's got the mindset. He just, uh, yeah, I don't know. He just needed an additional leg up or a little bit more luck, I guess. But like, you know, the, the film ends with them driving in, in the rain to the movie or, uh, you know, getting to the the Pantages and watching from from the booth, and and him being like, "This is it! Like, this is this is my masterpiece! Like, this is the one." And they leave. We don't really even see the crowd's reaction to it, probably markedly because like it was not all that well received, even in its yeah. its premiere. Uh, but he decides. You know, he gets down on his knees and he's going to go and marry Patricia Arquette and. You know, we get this very romantic, very lyrical kind of ending to everything for Wood. And it's only after we've kind of panned up past the Pantages to the Hollywood sign and like into the darkness of the night and beyond that we see the reality of Edward's final years, which is that, you know, he continued to make movies on smaller and smaller budgets, you know, kind of moving into like sex comedies before he started doing outright porn. And then uh, died like way too young, like in his fifties, uh, broke and, and an alcoholic. And I mean, to the point where it was, you know, making pornographic movies and then not being able to make movies at all, just Mm -hmm. writing pornographic, uh, novels and material. And then, 
having to sell his typewriters for booze. Uh, I read something that was very sad where that he was living in such a shitty neighborhood that he told his publishers to deliver his paychecks directly to the liquor store so he could just use it directly to buy booze and wouldn't get robbed on the way mm. uh, over there. Yeah. Um, so him and his wife definitely uh, ended in a sad way. And uh, and then, you know, two years after he died, he was, you know, voted in some poll as the worst director of all time that then started to sort of uh, uh, become a sort of cult figure. And then I'm sure the the biography sort of added to that as well. Yeah, I, I think that you're certainly right. And it's interesting the way that you know, negative kind of publicity or, you know, someone declaring you like the worst at something gets you the notoriety that you wouldn't ever receive if you had just been, you know, just completely mediocre and and forgotten to time. And uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the publication. So the, the Golden Turkey Awards, I think is what it is. Michael right, Medved. Whatever that was. Yeah. Something that was uh, like proto Razzies or I, whatever. Yeah. I was just going to say it feels like a precursor to the Razzies, which, you know, equally like just ridiculous institution that perpetually gets things wrong and tries to typify a very narrow perception of what filmmaking and art are and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, like Ed Wood and, and having watched, you know, Glenn or Glenda alone and, and seeing pieces of his other works, he is not, there's no way he's the worst director of all time. He's just the one that, you know, has made uh, the most visible and maybe accessible movies to this particular group of people at a time that they considered to be extremely bad. <laughs> um, and they and they are like, you know, they're not necessarily well made. Like it's it's very clear that it's not just, uh, you know, a lack of resources, that it is also sort of, you know, the the limitations of of the creator themselves and, and of the director and the kind of stories he wanted to tell or the ideas that were in his head. But there is something just so incredibly endearing about somebody who perseveres through that and who gets something, you know, onto the celluloid and, and has that transcend and live on and sort of immortalize him. And I, I am just really thankful to get the opportunity to see his work and that that this movie is a part of that lineage now, you know, not just, you know, the, the golden turkeys and then the, the Rudolph gray biography, but this film also doing even more of that work to sort of immortalize and to create a pathway into the discovery of his work for people. Yeah. And, and it's nice to think how much he would have loved the movie. And it's, it's similar to, you know, the scene in, in, in the film when they ask like, well, isn't this grotesque that you're like, you know, pretending that Bella is still in this movie and, and he goes, no, he would have loved it. Like, <laughs> uh, you know, Bella lives on rise from the grave. And, and, and I like to think that I think Ed Edward D wood jr. Would feel similarly about the film of Ed Wood, which gave him, gives him more dignity and sort of, um, uh, respect than he ever, you know, uh, was given in life. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful movie. I think it's one of the best movies ever made about filmmaking. Um, I put it up there with, you know, eight and a half and day for night and, and mm -hmm. all the other kind of greats. And it, uh, it's, 
and it gets a particular thing correct about the sort of circus nature of of independent filmmaking and kind of by any means necessary uh of independent filmmaking and like so he's kind of you know he's a little bit of a hero in that sense that he just he wanted to make films no matter what and he did absolutely and you know i I would like to pull the string as bella would say uh and go further on that conversation because we do have uh, you on the show, Chad, as an industry insider and professional yourself. This movie to me, you know, we talk on the show all the time about the era of the 90s, the kind of movies that were coming out and, you know, the sort of uh, silly refrain that we often make and and try to kind of specify and detail further than just like a nostalgia kind of a nostalgic sort of remark, which is they they don't make movies like this anymore. But even in 1994, when this movie is coming out as it's chronicling Ed Wood and you know his triumphs and his travails, it's also sort of saying like the apparatus and the structure in which movies like this get made is not nearly the same as it was even then. And you're still seeing, you know, like in the 90s, like this burgeoning independent movement, you know, with with certain guys. I mean link later and and the the Sundance crew and even some of the more mainstream guys like Kevin Smith and what have you. But it feels like a lot of that has collapsed. (laughs) You know, frankly, it feels like there's not, there's not a system that exists in modern filmmaking by which we would get another Ed Wood, uh, the, the filmmaker, not, not the film itself. That, that that wouldn't persevere, that, you know, there may be people like this making movies right now, but that there's no system and, and no procedure by which those things would be immortalized or seen or, or screened for people. And, and I'm curious what you think of that. Is that too alarmist from your perspective or, or has this really kind of changed so irrevocably that like independent filmmaking is totally different today? Um, I think that it goes in cycles. Um, I think... You know, the the kind of boom of the 90s of of, uh, you know, Tarantino and Spike Lee and Kevin Smith and and Jim Jarmusch and et cetera. Like, I think that that has become really tough. Um, And, you know, if you look at the kinds of movies and the sales that were, you know, at Sundance, you know, this year or this, you know, even whatever it was a week or two ago, mm-hmm. um, where you're still seeing a few large, uh, sales, but like they're really outliers and, and, you know, it, it's not a healthy business when they screen 200 movies at Sundance and only five sell for profit, you know? Yeah. Um, and that kind of is what's going on. Um, in terms of, you know, the Ed Woods of the world. Well, yeah, I don't know. There's plenty of fucking bad independent films being made uh, <laughs> in in genre spaces and being put out. Mm. In like, in fact, I think that apparatus exists in a way because they're being put out on Tubi and you know on Amazon Prime and et cetera. Right. Uh, and they're not. They're similarly not making their money back. Um, I think the the economics of 
independent film is is where we're at right now is alarming to me and and feels like uh we're on the brink of a collapse uh i think there are too many movies i think there are too many movies the costs of the movies are going up while the worth of the movies is going down um from a, both a sales perspective uh from from you know distributors to which is only reactive to the audience uh i think that the pandemic has exacerbated a problem that already existed where we suddenly in a panic uh, uh sort of trained the audience in a you know 18 month period that they don't have to pay for new movies anymore um and and so yeah i don't know i mean i i i always joke with people that if you're like i mentioned before but if you're a- asking for optimism i'm the wrong person to talk to but uh <laughs> but you know it it does it does keep prevailing so like what mm-hmm. do i know but um you know the economics it's, it's funny because it's like they they've always exist like it's always been you got a star, you got a dentist 401k, you got a girl and a gun and a monster and you can make a movie, you know, like, and mm-hmm. that is still true, you know? Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's how Reservoir Dogs got financed. That's how Plan 9 from Outer Space got financed. Like, uh, you know, it's still, it still kind of exists. And I do believe that you can make uh, a quality movie, uh, you know, at a low budget, you know, with a, you know, sort of either has been or up and coming star uh, and, and make something great. I mean, that's what I, you know, kind of try to do every day. Uh, But I do think that the, I, I think the market has shrunk and I think that people are, are taking less risks. And I think that, um, the, the percent, like the, the, the chance of, of making your money back, let alone a profit, uh, has gone down. I think that's all well said and well put. Uh, you heard it here first cinema over your, uh, helping me to be even less pessimistic despite uh what you may what you may believe about yourself uh i I... like and just just to throw some some optimism on it you you obviously have these total insane outliers like barbie and oppenheimer um this year but you also have you know you look at uh my friends um alex mechanic and sammy birch who wrote uh may december who i went to college with and they were making short films before that. This is their first produced screenplay. Um, you know, they're in their late thirties, like, and and that screenplay was certainly not written as a sort of final, you know, uh, hoorah to write something commercial that would finally break through. They wrote that as from their hearts, and it's a fu- and, it, and it's a fucking brilliant screenplay. And now they're Oscar nominees, and it was made into a masterpiece that is like profitable for everybody. So stuff like that still happens too. So you know who knows? That's great to hear. Uh, May December on Netflix now. 
one of Hit Factory's favorite films of 2023. It is genuinely a masterpiece, brilliant script, uh, and one that makes a bunch of people confused and upset uh, in ways that are uh, really, really wonderful uh, and, and good art should. So if you haven't seen it yet, uh, this is like our fourth week in a row, I think, of recommending it and just saying, go watch fucking May, December. It's, it's incredible. Just a wonderful, wonderful picture. Um, yeah, I think, you know, like like I said, Chad, the, your optimism uh, shines through even as you declare yourself a pessimist. You know, I, I grew up in the era uh, falling in love with movies and reading the books that were like, you know, Tarantino made this thing, you know, and on the weekends with his friends and Robert Rodriguez, you know, lit his sets with uh, with his lamps and stuff like that. And and you, you know, are, are told time and time again, like, this is how you do it. This is how you get a movie off the ground. This is how you start out in this industry, you know, if you don't have any of the connects. Um, so it's nice to hear that 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 kind of stuff does still have some sort of footing, that it still does happen on occasion, you know, that it's not so concretized in this sort of highly corporate uh, space and, and, you know, this capitalistic kind of endeavor that would, you know, keep people out. So, uh, I, and, I'm happy. And to if I it. could just add one more thing, I mean, like, I think the, uh, the best advice I can give to, you know, aspiring filmmakers is that, and this has always been true. And this goes back to Ed Wood too. the easiest pot, the easiest movie to get made and to get financing for is something that has limited locations, a genre element, and a known actor. And if you can get those three things, there's a good chance your movie can get made. Love to hear it. Back on Ed Wood, just some like stray observations here as we're kind of wrapping up. Uh, we forgot to mention that this is like one of two films, three films in uh, Burton's entire filmography that does not have the name Danny Elfman associated with it. Mm. Uh, apparently they had had a bit of a falling out after the rushed sort of, uh, post-production process of Batman returns. And then after uh, nightmare before Christmas for sure. Um, and so Howard Shore is doing the score on this one. It's so funny, you know, as, as the music kicks in at the beginning, you get that awesome, uh, sort of like, uh, effects laden title sequence with all the, uh, Edward references, the beautiful miniature of, of Hollywood, and I was listening to the music. I was like, there's that characteristic Danny Elfman stuff. And then his well, name it, didn't show up. It also kind of reminds you of the opening of Men in Black. <laughs> yes, uh, exactly. That has like that Men kind of movement, which is, I think that's Elfman, right? Like I, That uh, is an Elfman score. Yep. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It really is Howard Shore doing a Danny Elfman impression, I think. Uh, but I'm fine with that. No, I am too. I, I think it sounds great. I, I find it kind of interesting. You know, it's, it's, uh, an outlier in his career and it's one of the ones too, just like it, it, in a lot of ways feels distinct from the kind of Tim Burton project while also feeling totally of a, of a piece with it. Like it doesn't, it doesn't feel like the kind of oft parodied, uh, sort of, you know, punchline version of a, a Tim Burton film in a lot of ways, even while it still feels very much like it's it's in his wheelhouse. Right. And this was like Howard Shore Shore was just kind of starting to graduate out of David Cronenberg mm -hmm. world. Like he had he was starting to work with Demi, uh did Silence of the Lambs and and Philadelphia. And then after that would 
you know, do more, would branch out further. But yeah, that's, that's interesting. Trying to think if there's anything else beyond that. That was like the one big one that I wanted to point out. We didn't have to talk about Johnny Depp at all on this episode. You know, now 30 years on, we, we see this kind of cast of characters and say, oh yeah, there's a lot of unseemly folks here. Um, different time, different time in Hollywood, different time for these people in their careers as well. Indeed. I mean, but it's also, it's like, what are you going to do? They're all really fucking good in the movie. Like, uh, I mean, it, it is unfortunate to, to admit that, uh, that happens often. Uh, Carly and I were, were sharing this more. So her, uh, on the internet this past week, uh, that, we had watched the most recent Creed film directed by Michael B. Jordan, which stars a uh, fantastic antagonist turn <laughs> by Jonathan Majors. Incredible! Uh, he's he's just uh, remarkable in it, and uh, it brings me no pleasure to report that the guy seems like not a good person, uh, no. in fact, a bad person. Uh, but you watch it, and it's like it's pretty undeniable. Like we were both kind of looking at each other, like, man, it 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 really sucks how good he is in this movie. <laughs> For, you know, for Depp's part, at least, you know, like he's off in France making movies with people like Mywen, who, you know, themselves were. Uh, well, he's going to slowly become a Bella Lugosi figure, essentially. I, you know, uh, sort of tragically and ironically, I mean, instead of heroin, it's wine. But uh, I think <laughs> that we can. I think what truly will happen is that he will slowly uh appear in smaller and smaller roles in worse and worse and cheaper and cheaper productions mm -hmm. uh and and that's kind of you know similar to bella lugosi's fate in this movie like you know as you see with these sort of like you know the the modern day independent film that is not sort of at Sundance. It, the other end of that uh, spectrum is the sort of red box, like Bruce Willis model. Yep. And, uh, you know, where you have a sort of star that still has value overseas. And as long as they're in uh, 20, 25 minutes of the movie and the financiers do clock it, uh, they will sort of justify your budget. And, uh, you know, there are examples of people trying to actually make good movies within that model. Um, that's how all three of S. Craig Zoller's movies were made. Right. That there, there have been attempts to, you know, make good movies in that model because it is pretty loose. Like, really, they just need to have guns in them and... They need to have like Mel Gibson or Bruce Willis in like 20 minutes of them. So if that's your only, you know, handcuffs, like there's no reason why you can't make a good movie out of that. Mm -hmm. And and some people have, uh, but it's it's, you know, a model of it's it's hard to fight the uh, conveyor belt production mode where everyone is looking at you sideways because you're actually trying to make a good movie. So it, sure. it, it's, it's difficult. And I do, again, I do think that S Craig Zoller has sort did sort of succeed in those three movies. Uh, but 
yeah, it's 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 rare to see somebody doing that. But I think you'll see Johnny Depp make more and more of those, you know, in that kind of world of movies. Yeah, that makes sense. It seems like kind of a place where uh, ambition or some sort of artistic vision is stamped out often. And, you know, we'll probably see Depp doing like the Seagal route where he's in like those 25 right. minutes just like sitting down the entire time like is you know is exactly what's hard is that like those are the only independent movies that are guaranteed a profit so like everybody else that's betting on these sort of sundance prestige movies are taking like huge huge financial risks mm-hmm. and like and and you know it's already a miracle to get into Sundance, and then it's been increasingly a miracle to sell for a profit at Sundance. So it's like you're talking about the point one percent of these sort of prestige independent movies. So I, it's hard to blame financiers for wanting a sort of you know more of a guarantee of their investment back. And you know a lot of times you're just seeing these people be sort of one and done investors which again is fine. And that's a lot of these Ed Wood people that we see in the movie are, are similar. But if you want to do this for a living, you can't be burning through investors every year, basically, you know? So it's a difficult balance. Uh, And again, what's depicted in the film is, is not very different than it is now. Mm. Same as it ever was. Yes. The old has become new again. The characters that these actors have portrayed, they will become them inevitably. Uh, Yeah. Cycles repeating themselves. Time, a flat circle. Question mark? Possibly. Only time will tell. Uh, But one thing we can say for certain is that uh, the Edward D. Wood Jr. immortalized by this film, Tim Burton's Ed Wood, 1994. Fantastic movie. uh, And a wonderful Wonderful conversation we have had about it uh, with you, Chad Harbold. Thank you so much for being on Hit Factory. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me. It was great. Uh, I love the podcast. Happy to be a part of it. We are so happy you are welcome back anytime for any movie that you can think of or can somehow go back in time and conjure up yourself uh, so long as it was released between January 1, 1990 and December 31, 1999. Though some people say the 90s didn't really end until 9-11. I, I side with that a little bit. You know, decades are never, you know, uh, just those 10 years. But uh, So Zoolander is the last film of the 90s? <laughs> That's right. Zoolander is the last true work of the 1990s. Uh, I don't know. We, we've got to we've got to have rules somewhere. We got to keep people in line. So we are going to play by by those rules, 1990 to 1999. But uh, yes, please come back anytime, Chad. Uh, in the meantime, and until then, where can people find you, your work, and all that you do around the internet? Um, you can find me, uh, on Twitter and Letterboxd, uh, at Chad with two D's, uh, written out like a sentence. Uh, and then I'll just try to plug, uh, two movies. Um, one, uh, that, that I, my, the most recent film that I wrote and directed, uh, is called Private Property. Uh, it stars Ashley Benson and Shiloh Fernandez and, uh, is on Hulu, uh, and is a remake of the 1960, uh, film noir by Leslie Stevens and, uh, a film I produced called Linoleum, 
which is written and directed by Colin West and stars uh, Jim Gaffigan, Ray Seahorn, and uh, Tony Shalhoub. And uh, both of those are on Hulu uh, for free and uh, anywhere that you can rent uh, movies. And uh, oh, also Linoleum just... uh, uh, got on Canopy, um, so you can actually rent it for free with all you need is a library card. Fantastic. That's wonderful. Uh, seek out Linoleum. It's on my queue uh, at the moment as well. I've been meaning to get to it. Uh, very excited to watch. If you need a library card, reach out at hitfactorypod at gmail, and I will help get you one so that you can uh, find your way towards this film uh, and some of Chad's other work, if you can uh, find that too. I'm noticing, Chad, on Letterboxd, you've got the great Walter Hill film Extreme Prejudice in your top four at the moment. Uh, One of my very favorites, uh, I think maybe my choice uh, for one of the finest assemblages of a group of guys ever to uh, touch celluloid. So, bravo. Yeah, uh, it's a real guys being dudes movie uh, in a in the most tragic way imaginable. And uh, <laughs> I think it's Walter Hill's best movie. Uh, I pretty loose remake of The Wild Bunch, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Um, also, I don't know if I uh, just saw them at the same time, but a really cool companion piece to another great movie of the of that era called Deep Cover. Uh, that are both kind of movies about how the CIA was funding the drug trade, uh, you know, one in the black community in LA and one at the border, uh, kind of two sides of, of a similar idea that I think we're just sort of great minds think alike, but great double feature. If I ever get to program a double feature at Metrograph or somewhere, I might do <laughs> those two. I'm making note of that right now. I had never thought about that comparison, but Bill Duke's Deep Cover, another Hit Factory favorite, um, one that we uh, enjoy quite a bit. Uh, Well, with that, folks, uh, we will let you go. I will let Chad go. I will uh, unshackle him from the bench that I have locked him to so that he could record this podcast. You can follow along with us at Hit Factory Pod. That's Instagram. That's Twitter. That is... Also, Blue Sky, I guess, if anyone is still using that. Um, we have a Patreon as well, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod, where for just $5 per month, you can get full access to the Hit Factory experience, all of our bonus content, our bi-weekly bonus episodes, uh, interviews, polls, an invite to the Hit Factory Discord, where things are always popping off. We've got a lot of friends of the show in there. We're always talking about films of the 90s we're talking about the latest releases we're sharing our blu-ray collections in there we are sharing on occasion some extremely legally obtained media files of new and old movies that are sometimes hard to get our hands on uh so come hang out and uh be with us there where the action is i'll give a shout out to our overlords their names are linda and jared murray thank you so much for your continued support for helping to make the show possible and we will catch you all the next time Take care, everyone. Pull the string! Pull the string!